Okay, guys, we are in chapter 13 of Hebrews. This is our lesson 21. Uh, we're going to be, we're going to take chapter 13 in two parts. We're going to do the first part today, which are the final instructions. And then next week we will finish up Hebrews with the final words that the writer has to say. So we're going to look today, kind of go through some instructions that he's giving. He's kind of, all right, at this point, he's kind of ended his whole discussion about why they should not give up on the new covenant and go back to the old covenant. Okay, remember, he's, write, he's writing to Hebrew Christians who, because of persecution or because of struggles or hard times, are thinking about giving up on uh, the new covenant because they don't, they're, they're at a point where they don't think Jesus is sufficient for them. And they think they need to go back to the Old Covenant. So he, he's answered that through most of the book, and that's what we've spent most of our time looking at. Now he's getting to the close of his letter, and he's going to give them some final instructions. And uh, so that's what we're going to look at today. So let's look together. First of all, let's look at verses uh, 1 through 6 and see what he says here. Verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourself are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? All right, now what we can do is we see a set of instructions here in these six verses. We can kind of divide them up into two parts. We're going to see some instructions concerning our social life our social life, and then we're going to see some instructions concerning our private life. So our social life, verses 1 to 3, and then our private life, which will be verses 4 to 6. So let's take a look here. First thing, the writer commands the readers to love each other with a with Christian love. He's saying, let brotherly love continue. So here, here's the thing. That is probably one of the most important things that you and I need to grasp as far as our church. If there's one thing, well, actually, there's a couple things. They're both connected. If, if there's a couple things that need to be evident in a church, one is unity, the other is love. And you can't have, you can't have one without the other. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? You need to have love in the church. And so he's encouraging, he's commanding them. Actually, it's a command here. It's not, it's not something that they have an option to do. They are to express brotherly love to each other. Brotherly love needs to continue among them. So brotherly love, here's what it means. It means expresses a mutual regard for one another. Brotherly love expresses a mutual regard for one another. So let me just kind of clarify that to you. I've been stressing this a lot throughout all of my teaching and all the time that I've been here. Christianity is not a solo sport. Okay? It's not an individual game. Christianity 
is a corporate thing. It's about relationships. And you can't go it alone. Period. And so in order for Christianity to exist in its best form, there has to be love and there has to be brotherly love and there has to be a regard for one another. Not just yourself, because here's what we do. Our tendency is to put the blinders on and only think about who? Ourselves. Period. It's like staring in the mirror all day long. How ridiculous is that? When you, when you see somebody, all they do is continually look at themselves whenever they go by a mirror. Oh. You know, do you know what I'm saying? You look at that and you say, wow, that is ridiculous that they're acting that way because they must be self-absorbed. They must be in love with themselves. Folks, people come to church and they're that way. They're not looking in a mirror all day long, but they're sitting around pouting because nobody's paying attention to them. Do you know what I mean? The reality is, is you're not supposed to have people pay attention to you. You're supposed to pay attention to other people. And if, if, in fact, think of it this way. If you're sitting here waiting for somebody to think about you, it's never going to happen. But if every one of us thinks about the other person, you're going to be thought about too. Do you know what I'm saying? The law of averages says you're going to be thought about too. So the first thing he's commanding them to do is show brotherly love. Be concerned for each other. It's not about me, myself, and I. Here's the other thing. The writer stresses that we're not to forget to show hospitality to strangers. Now, I know this is a hard one. What do you mean it's hard, George? Well, I know that in our culture here, in our area, we are very clan-oriented. Okay? Very clan-oriented. You want me to visit you in the hospital. You don't want me to visit you at your house. Did you know what I'm saying? That's just our culture. So the, the reality is, is this is a hard one. The writer is stressing that part of the thing is that you need to be hospitable. Now, what does it mean to be hospitable? That, that you invite people over for a meal? No, that you are willing to open up your home to anybody. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're willing to open your sanctuary to anybody. That's what it's talking about here. Because something else is motivating you. What's motivating you? Verse verse 1, brotherly love. Did you understand what I'm saying? Brotherly love. Did you understand what I'm saying? The verse is verse 2 is not encouraging you to be the party house. You know, the hangout place for everybody. That's not what it's encouraging. Verse 2 is encouraging you, and I think we can maybe do this, can't we? Is to have a home where if you sense a need in somebody, you're willing to open up your sanctuary to them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, here's why he says that. He provides his readers with another perspective concerning the issue. He's telling you, why do you need to even consider this? He's going to provide you with another perspective here. He's going to give you another thought process to help you to understand why you need to do that. Okay? Now, and, and the perspective he's going to give you is actually quite foreign to our scientific mindset in our country. To our scientific mindset. Here's what he says. He reminds his readers that some have unwittingly entertained angels. Angels. 
Now he's referring, the writer of Hebrews is referring, remember he's writing Hebrew Christians. The person that he has in mind is from the Old Testament. Anybody remember from the Old Testament who entertained angels? Abraham did. He didn't just entertain angels, he entertained God too. Okay? God showed up with two angels. So the the point is, in fact, I think I gave you the scripture reference there, is Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, if you look at your notes there. So what he's saying here is, there needs to be a willingness on your part, as you sense a need, to be willing to open your inner sanctum of your home to minister to others, because who knows, you might be ministering to angels. Angels. Now, why would they do that? Why would Angels don't need me to minister to them. Anybody have any clue why we would be put in a situation where we might have to open our home to angels? Anybody have a clue why that might happen? Because they like your turkey dinner? I don't know. What, what is it? Anybody have a clue? Have you thought about that? Because they don't need minister to. Why? We need minister to, okay, but there's another reason why. You said it, Brad. Yeah, it's a testing of you to see where you're at genuinely in your heart. Did you understand what I'm saying? Because the reality is, is you know, you're constantly being tested. Everybody realize that you're constantly being tested, whether you realize it or not, with the everyday life that goes on around you. It's all part of your what? Sanctification. It's all part of your sanctification. Becoming like Christ. And it, and it, it may be a test of you. Okay? No, they'll show up though, Bruce. I, I don't, I don't think you're gonna, I'm not advocating that you sh- I'm not, believe me, I don't go around looking for who's got a sign. Okay? But they have shown up. What do you mean they show up? Well, things will happen and you will be led. It's the response of the Holy Spirit in your life. I've had, I've done that though, Bruce. Over the years. I'm just but, yeah, and what I'm saying is, is you need to be led by the Spirit. Uh, here, flex with me a little bit, okay? I am okay. <laughs> flex with me a little bit, because. Okay, Here, here's what I'm trying to say is, okay, Bruce is right. We got we live in a world where we have nuts and crazy people, okay? But, okay, when, I, when I'm saying about opening up your home, I'm, I'm using that in a general sense. Because you can be hospitable to people without actually inviting them into your home. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Now, in certain cases, you might have to open up your home. Did you understand what I'm saying? Certain cases you might actually have to open up your home. But God's going to be the one that's going to guide you into that. Did you understand what I'm saying? And But there needs to be a willingness on your part, Lord, use me wherever I can be. Now, you, you want to be smart about it. You don't want to be an idiot and, and, and invite 
you know, some guy that just got out for axe murder. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? But maybe you do if the guy's repentant or something. I don't know. I mean, what were you going to say? Open up your heart. Yes, that's right. You know, it's opening up your heart. Okay? Because uh, some of you, I'm going to be flat out honest with you. Okay? Some of you would be never comfortable with anybody coming over to your home. You're not even comfortable with mama coming over. Okay? So, here's the thing. But you can still show hospitality. Did you understand what I'm saying? You can still show hospitality. How? By going the extra mile for people. Like, okay, I know that it costs 90 bucks in town to get a hotel room for a night. You say, well, I ain't got 90 bucks, George. Well, maybe you can make a few phone calls and say, hey, I've got this situation and somebody's desperate tonight and, you know, you can work it out for them. If it's a lady... The Marion House in town. There are ways. It, it's, it's, here's, the issue is, is are you going to step out of your own personal world to help somebody? That's really what the issue is. Now, Bruce, here's what I'm saying. I want, okay, let me, let me, cause, let me bring it down to a principle instead of specifics, cause we're getting hung up on specifics. The principle that he's saying here is that you need to be hospitable to strangers. Okay, now I'm using it from their context. They would open their home to them. Okay? In our context, okay, I understand the fears about opening homes. Okay, we got that. Let's not talk about opening your home. But let's talk about opening your heart to them. Because the fact of the matter is, is that part of being hospitable is having a regard for other people. And most of us only live in a world where we only think about who? Yeah, our, our families. I have six. You know what I'm saying? You know, do you know what I'm saying? And so what, it, what it's calling us for is, is to be hospitable, to be open your world, to open your mindset, to open yourself up to help somebody else. Not necessarily bringing them into your home. Okay? Yeah, I mean, I, if I give them a jar of jelly, I better give them some bread and peanut butter too, so, okay? Okay, so. Yes. It's, it's opening your heart to people. Okay? It's opening, okay, because here's the thing, most of you are never going to open your doors. Okay? Alright? You're never going to de- unlock the 50 deadbolts that you have on the door. Okay? You know what I'm saying? And, uh, the, the reality is, is that's okay, but, if there was an other way that maybe required you to give up something sacrificially, like your time, to make a few phone calls, to see that you can help this person out. That's really what the issue is about being hospitable. Do you understand? Our culture is a little bit different. Okay, Their culture, they would take literally take, you've read it, some guy off the street. Isn't that what the story of uh, Lot in, in Sodom and Gomorrah is when the angels went in, he took them off the street into his home for their safety. Okay, that's what the issue is, is that you're doing it for others' well-being. That's the issue here, okay? Sorry that we got hung up on the specifics of that. Uh, the point that he's making here is, is that you might be entertaining angels. 
You might be entertaining angels, is what he's saying here. here. Here's what else he's talking about. He's going to talk about the issue of prisoners. The writer tells his readers to remember the prisoners as if they were in prison as well. You know, we're quick to, I'll be honest with you, we're talking about a mindset here. I think what he's actually expressing in these verses is, what does it mean to show brotherly love, to have regard for one another? And and the reality is, what he's saying here is, number one, I need to be hospitable to, to, I need to be open to helping strangers. Now he's going to talk about prisoners, and he's going to say, hey, you know what, you need to treat prisoners and be there for prisoners just like if you were in prison. Because let's be honest, we, in our culture, if you go to prison, we write you off. You're getting what you deserve, right? I mean, that's the mentality, especially in church, because we're the, we're the crime and punishment people, you know? And what he's calling us to here is he's, he's talking about, a, a, about being there, okay? And we've done that here at our church, you know? I could think of a situation where, where myself and uh, some of the men here have reached out to someone while they've been. I've been visiting them when, when they were in, and, you know, they get out, move out of our area, and then we hear they're back in again. Do, do you know what I'm saying? So we try to reach out. We're trying to reach out with the love of Christ. We have regard for them. But that doesn't mean it's you're guaranteed. You, 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 a lot of times we don't want to do it because we want to see that they get saved. Well, folks, they may never get saved. That's not the point. The point is is that I'm supposed to do what I'm supposed to do. Show the love of Jesus. How many times did Jesus show love and got rejected? Yeah. Now, did he stop showing love? No. It happens every day. That's right, Bruce. It happens every day. Here's the other one. They were also to remember those who were mistreated as if they suffered as well. Now, that's the bigger, you know, it's a stretch with the prisoners. But here's one that you're confronted with every day. You meet people every day that are going through it. Am I not right? You meet people every day that are going through it. You're to remember them like you have suffered. Now, the common thing we'll say is, well, I remember when I went through it, nobody was there for me. Okay. So you know what it feels like to have nobody there for you. Why don't you be there for them so that they never experience that? Do you know what I mean? This is what we're called to do. Hey, Christianity is more than just showing up and sitting in a pew. Do you understand what I'm saying? Christianity is supposed to affect you and how you deal with other people. Is it any is it any wonder people don't want to have anything to do with your Jesus because they don't see the practical implications of that? That we're supposed to we're called to be like Jesus, to do like Jesus is doing. So they were also to remember those who were mistreated as if they had suffered as well. Now, the writer is calling his readers to identify with prisoners and the mistreated. So the issue in verse 3 here is the issue of identification. When he's talking about remembering them as if you were suffering or remembering them as if you were in prison, he's talking about you identifying with them. Now, for some of us, that's, that's, that's easy. What do you mean that's easy? If you see somebody who's going through the same kind of thing that you went through, you identify with them. You know the feelings that they're going through. But a lot of times, you need to maybe put yourself 
in the shoes of the other person and think about what if I was going through that, how would I be feeling right now? Did you understand what I'm saying? What if I was going through that, how would I be feeling right now? So that brings up a good point. Let's just let me just say this. We really need to get out of our self-absorption and really need to stop and ponder where people are at around us. And if we've gone through the same thing that they've gone through, who better to give them an encouragement than somebody who's been through it? Because one of the things that they're going to be wrestling with is is that they're the only ones who are going through this. They're going to think that they're an island to themselves. And sometimes it, it is tremendous to know that somebody will come up and say, you know what, I'm praying for you because I went through it too. So they don't feel alone. Do you understand what I'm saying? And, and when you go to them, you say, I went through it too. You don't say, I know how you feel. Nobody knows how you feel. You're not, feelings are different. But you can say, I identify with your pain. I identify with your pain. I don't know exactly how you're feeling, but I went through this too. And believe me, I will pray for you that you get through this. That's tremendous. That's reaching out beyond yourself. It's, it's also, if you see somebody going through it, and you maybe haven't had the same experience, it's tremendous for you just to go up to them and say, I don't know what you're going through, and I don't understand the complete pain of your life, but I'm going to let you know that I am concerned for you and that I'm going to pray for you through this. That God gives you grace. And if you just need somebody to talk to, I don't have answers. I'm not going to give you answers. Let me just stop for a moment. When people talk to us, we don't need to give answers. Sometimes people just need to what? Vent. See, this is what he's talking about, identifying with them. Okay? That's brotherly love. That's brotherly love. That's what he's talking about here. Let's go on. The writer commends marriage as something that his readers should hold honorable. You know, I was reading this and I was convicted by this uh, verse. And the reason why I was convicted by it is is because we trivialize marriage, even if we're married. We joke about it. We just assume that Marriages are going to be destroyed. In fact, let me just go ahead and tell you, uh, how many of you know there's a, there's a counselor lady by the name of Shanti Feldman? How many, how many have heard Shanti Feldman? She's written some books. She recently just did some research because there's a, there's a statistic that has been going around the church for about 20, 30 years now. And uh, she wanted to look to see what was the source of that statistic. What was the source of that statistic? And the statistic is, is that it says that 50% of marriages will end in divorce. How many of you heard that statistic before? I've said it. Okay? And here's what Shanti Feldman found. She looked back through all of the research and found that there was never a study that proved that. That the, the 50% statistic was actually a projection that was done during the 70s. During the 70s, they found that the divorce rate was 28%. And the researchers in their report projected by 1990 that the divorce rate would be 50%. And so what ended up happening is is that a projection was taken, 
and people just began to quote it as they didn't they just assumed that the, the, the scholars were right in the early 70s that by the, by the 90s it would be 50% nobody ever did a study to find out exactly what it is well what she found was is the divorce rate 20 20%. Might be a little bit higher, a few percentage points, but it never reached 50. Never reached 50. I, so I, you know, I, I read that and I was like, man, I am wrong. I should never say that again. I am wrong. Because what happens was, is when we hold it as less than honorable and we tell you, well, you got a 50-50 chance, it's a roll of dice, baby, as to whether or not you're going to make it. We trivialize it. I trivialize it. The writer here is telling us not to trivialize marriage, but to hold it as honorable. And of all places, where marriage should be held honorable is where? Right here among believers. Why? Because Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is a picture of what? The union between us, the church, and Jesus. Did you understand what I'm saying? The union between us, the church, and Jesus. So the writer commends marriage as something that his readers should be held, hold as honorable. Now let me just stop for a moment. I want you to think about this whole letter. We've just gone through 12 other chapters. Does anybody remember in all of the lessons and looking at the other 12 chapters, he ever mentioned marriage before? No, he didn't. It's like, where did that one come from? Because even they struggled, baby. We need to have an attitude where we view marriage as something honorable. Okay? Here's what else he says. The word bed here, if you look in uh, verse uh, 4, the word bed refers to sexual intimacy within marriage. And basically what he's saying here is, look at what he says, verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. So he's talking about the sanctity of your home and and the sexual intimacy there. So what he goes on and says is, the readers are commanded not to defile sexual intimacy within marriage. You're not to defile the intimacy in your marriages. And there are a lot of ways to do that today, are there not? We don't need to go through that. I mean, we live in a sexualized society. You can't even drive down the road without seeing a billboard now. Okay? That's sensual. And so there are many ways that we can defile our marriages. He's telling us not to. Not to do that. Here's why. The writer reminds his readers that God will judge sexual sin. God will judge sexual sin. Let me just stop for a moment. He He's talking about here, he says, fornicators and, uh, verse 4 says, fornicators and adulterers. Fornication is also sexual immorality. It's also translated sexual immorality. So for the immoral, sexually immoral, and adulterers, they're going to be judged. That pretty much covers the gamut, don't you think? Because somebody would say, well, I'm, 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 I'm faithful to my wife. I'm not, a, not an adulterer, but you might be sexually immoral. 
It's possible to be sexually immoral and not be an adulterer. Do you understand that? And the reality is, is that you will be judged. It's saying here that God will judge sexual sin. Period. And here's what he says. The phrase will judge means, the, 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 in its original language, the judgment is sure. This is not a possibility like, well, maybe he'll do it. No, if we are sexually immoral, if we are, are adulterers, if we're defiling our marriage beds, or the sexual intimacy in our homes, we're going to be judged. Period. You are bringing judgment upon yourself. Period. Okay, so let's go on. Look now at our conduct and contentment. The writer calls us to conduct ourselves without being motivated by greed. You, you know, a lot of you know a lot of the things we do have the wrong motivation. Even your Christian service can be motivated by the wrong things. What do you mean? You might be motivated in your Christian service by personal gain rather than wanting to serve Jesus. Do you understand? what It's how you look and what you can get out of it. That's the danger for pastors. Okay? That's the extreme danger for pastors. As he's saying here, so you need to conduct yourself not motivated by greed. Covetousness, wanting something. Okay? Covetousness. So we're not to be motivated by the love of money. Okay, the, the King James and the New King James says covetousness. All other versions translate it properly and say the love of money. The love of money. ESV, NIV. So we're, we're not to be motivated by the love of money. Now remember... I gave you a scripture reference there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says this, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, how many of you ever heard this statement? Money is the root of all evil. How many of you ever heard that? You may have said that. That is not true. That's not biblical. The Bible says it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. So that puts it off of the money onto the person. Okay? So we're not to be motivated by that. We're to conduct ourselves in a way that's not motivated by that. We're called to be content with the things that we have. That's a hard one for us. Because we have a whole industry, sales industry, that is geared to make you not content at all. Okay? But have you been to Walmart? Have you noticed? Kind of try to push your cart through that mountain of food on each side of you? I mean, and, and they've got it planned out pretty well. Have you noticed the coolers are like every other lane? You know, and so you pick out the one that has your brand. And then you look over there and they don't just have candy bars. they got king size. Whatever that means. And beef jerky. All right. We know what... We know now why you don't go to Walmart, okay? All right? All of that is to try to gear you with not being what? Yeah, content, happy, satisfied. See, we're called to be content with the things that we have. 
We're called to be content with the things that we have. That's what he's calling us to. All right, let's go on then. Why? The writer reflects on the promises of God for help in Joshua 1.5. He's quoting Joshua 1.5. It's a loose, loose quote of Joshua 1.5, where the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what's he talking about here? He's reflecting upon the promise of God for help. God promises that he will give you help. Okay? He promises that he'll give you help. Here's what he says. The Lord promises that he will never leave or abandon us. How many times do you feel like you've been abandoned by God? You don't need to raise your hand. But we sometimes feel that way, don't we? Especially when we're going through. It's like, Lord, where are you? I don't hear anything. I don't sense anything. Hey, let me just kind of point out to you, Christianity is not a feeling. And feelings can be deceptive. Christianity is resting in a hope. Even in, even, even in spite of all things. That's what faith is. It's resting in your hope, even in spite of the world being upside down. You're resting in your hope. So the Lord promises that he'll never leave us, nor abandon us, or abandon us. Because of God's promise, we have confidence in him. When you look at your Christian life, do you guys got confidence? Don't answer that out loud, but think about that. Do you have confidence? Are you confident about your God? You know, I, I'll just be honest with you. I was just thinking about something this week. And I can remember how I would have responded maybe even ten years ago. I would have been up all night, not sleeping, worrying, worrying, worrying. But I, I was thinking about it this week and I thought, you know, Lord, you're in control. And I'm going to trust you. This isn't my problem. This is your problem. And you're going to guide me through this. You've never not been there for me. You may want to write that down. He has never not been there for you. Am I right? So maturity is coming to the place where you say, I'm not going to be anxious about it anymore. But I'm going to trust in you. He has never not been there for you. Because of God's promise, we can have confidence in Him. So we don't need to fear men. <laughs> You're afraid of somebody, right? We're afraid of somebody. What do you mean? Well, think about it. You're at Walmart, you see somebody. If you're turning to go down the other aisle because you don't want to see them, that's fear of some reason, or irritation or something. You don't, you and I don't need to fear men. What can men do to you? If you have a true confidence in Christ, what can men do to you? They can even take, harm you physically, but can they ever take you away from Jesus? Can they ever take your hope away from you? No. No. Okay, the readers are called to remember their spiritual leaders who teach them the word of God. Look at verses 7 through 8. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow. Consider the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the first thing he's going to do is he's going to tell them to remember their spiritual leaders who teach them the word of God. We are to follow their example in faith. This is why it's so important that you 
select leaders among you who are examples of faith. Alright? Because they're to be your examples. Alright? So then he goes on because you say, well, men fail. Well, yeah, men do fail, but there's one person who doesn't fail. The writer proclaims the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay? All right. Next week, we're going to look at verses 9 through 25, the final words. 